welcome to the PaxX Podcast, available on iTunes. This is episode 47 of the show where we talk about everything to do with the passenger experience. I'm Mary Kirby, and I'm joined by my co-host, Max Flight. Max, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, Mary, but both you and I are kind of a little bit remote this episode, aren't we? We are. I'm up at Torch Lake, Michigan, and I have to apologize to our audience. I'm getting over a little bit of a cold, so I might sound a little Demi Moore-esque, Max, today. (laughs) Oh, that's fine. And I'm on the eastern shore of the Chesapeake Bay in Maryland, uh, camped out in a parking lot in the shadow of a very nice cell tower to which I am tethered and able to connect. Okay, we're crossing fingers and toes that our connectivity holds. Fantastic. I'm looking forward to today's uh, conversation. Before we get started, I would like to thank the Jetliner Cabins ebook app for sponsoring this week's podcast, The Concorde. It was impossible to ignore the beautiful shape of the world's first and only supersonic passenger jetliner as it roared overhead. But just how many of us would recognize Concorde's interior? Because of Concorde's immense speed and ultra-high flying performance, there were many unique technical factors to consider. For inspiration, the cabin designers turned to the world of exotic super sports cars and transformed Concorde's slender cabin into a streamlined, executive-style interior that was subsequently emulated by airlines worldwide. These and other vivid details make the Concorde flying experience come alive again in the Jetliner Cabin's ebook app, which tells the inside story of the Concorde interior. Visit JetlinerCabins.com to learn more and to download the app. Now, it's my great pleasure to introduce our guest today. A longtime aviation marketing and comms veteran, Jane Stanbury, is a managing director at UK-based Arena Group, which uses a wide range of marketing, commercial, and practical experience at an international level to help clients in aviation, travel, and commercial sectors. Among her clients, Jane is spearheading marketing and comms for the popular business aircraft modification house, Flying Colors Corp in Canada. Welcome to the show, Jane. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me on. Jane, it's wonderful to have you on. I think we're going to have a great conversation. Let's jump right in and take a look at some of the PaxX news stories making headlines. First, as the industry is well aware, aircraft that operate now in U.S. airspace with a transponder will need to have a certified ADS-B out system by January 1st, 2020. Jane, why do owners and operators need to be planning now, and how is the industry progressing towards meeting this FAA mandate? Well, it's an interesting situation, Max. Um, it's a hot and heavy topic, I would say. The ADSB out system, as I'm sure many will know, is part of a wider FAA initiative for the next generation of air transport system improvements. It comes down to the ATC towers, knowing where everything is in their controlled airspace. Uh, The broadcasts are intended to improve safety and security. As we get more aerial vehicles, such as UAVs, light jets, it's becoming more of a a problem. And so this system is hopefully going to mitigate any risks associated with it. Um, The bottom line is, though, if you don't have your aircraft equipped by 2020, you will find yourself with a pumpkin sitting on the apron. If you do not have this equipment, you will not be able to fly. And we are seeing here at Flying Colours that the classic rules of some ply and demand are already beginning to kick in. Oh, really? Yeah. So as the supply goes down, the demand goes 
up and it's getting a lot more pricey. So the big challenges for operators and owners to consider right now are booking slots. Um, the very basic numbers and math say that there are too many aircraft and not enough slots to all be outfitted by the deadline of the mandate. So if you don't work with your MRO to establish the right timing, you could find yourself flying perhaps to another continent to have the equipment fixed. And that's going to be expensive and time consuming. Oh, for heaven's sakes, that's serious business. <laughs> yeah, no, seriously, there are, there's a lot of aircraft actually flying into the States now to have the equipment put on. And that's also taking up slots. Right. So you can't just look at your own nation's aircraft fleet. You need to be thinking about aircraft coming from Europe, from South America that come into U.S. airspace regularly. Um, and they're all vying for the slots. There was an article in AvWeb, I believe, a few months ago, and they did a little calculation looking at how many aircraft they estimated would need to have ADS-B out installed and how many installers or uh, facilities there were to perform that installation. And they calculated that it would be necessary to do more than 100 installs per day worldwide, which is a, a huge number. So, yeah, the capacity of the industry just to install these devices is uh, kind of a difficult issue. Yeah, there's, there's a real problem with the amount of facilities that are able to provide the services required. And, and it's not as straightforward as just coming into your MRO and having a single piece of kit fitted. Um, you need to establish what's the right solution for your aircraft. So if you have an older aircraft, you might not have some of the basic transponder kit that you need on board in order to have the functioning ADS-B out. Uh, you need to research really carefully with your MRO what you are needing. And also thinking about the future as well. When you come to resell your aircraft, you want to have avionics in there that are attractive to your new buyer. Wow, very tight indeed. Now, for the uninitiated who may be uh, curious about what is ADSB out versus ADSB in, uh, the FAA clarifies for everyone says ADSB out refers to an aircraft broadcasting its positions and other information. ADSB in refers to an aircraft receiving the broadcast and messages from the ground. But the ADSB-IN is not mandated by this particular rule. So if an operator chooses to voluntarily equip an aircraft with ADSB uh, avionics, they need compatible displays. So uh, what are you seeing in terms of, Jane, uh, are they coming in and saying, you know, since we're doing the work to equip with ADSB out, we might as well go the full shebang and do in and out and have this kind of comprehensive next-gen solution? So Flying Colours, what we're advising smart operators and owners to do is to think about including the ADS-B out as part of a wider modification. Uh, the reason we're saying that is we're noticing that prices are already increasing from some flight deck companies by quite significant percentages. So if you're going to wait another year, you might find yourself paying up to 30% more for an upgraded avionics system that will support your ADS-B out or and possibly in if you want to have that installed. Um, this pricing is also becoming an issue with parts. The prices for the parts are increasing. And generally, the longer you wait, the more expensive it's going to get. Um, it's going to be a case, I think, where the slots and parts for ADS-B out are a bit like uh, the commodative aircraft themselves. You know, you buy a position in a queue for a new aircraft. It's going to start being like that, I think, with the ADS-B out installations. Um, and if people think that the FAA are going to extend their mandate deadline, we don't think that's going to happen at all. The mandate are very, is very firmly fixed for that date. 
Yeah, that's interesting. And of course, I'd imagine if you don't do it in time and don't have it in time, not only are you not able to fly, but I'd imagine the resale value on your aircraft would change a little bit as well, correct? Because then that puts the onus on any new buyer to get in, get into the queue. <laughs> no, you're completely right, Mary. And actually, Pete Bunce, who's the president of the General Aircraft Manufacturers Association, they in their bid to try and encourage people to think about getting ADSB out installed sooner rather than later, they're actually beginning some research with aircraft valuation companies, associations, to see just how much your assets value will depreciate, not necessarily on the 1st of January 2021, but from now onwards, because everybody is aware that there's going to be a massive rush right at the last minute. And if your aircraft isn't equipped, you're not going to fly anywhere. So it's, it's really got that serious. We're that far behind with the whole installation process. My sense is that the general aviation sector is lagging uh, more than commercial and business aviation in terms of getting these installed and lagging by a sizable margin. Yeah, and I think that's possibly because the commercial aviation sector, they, they rely on customers coming on board their aircraft to really generate income, whether it's through the ticket sales or the other revenue streams that they have. Whereas for a private aviation, if you're a private owner, you're very used to just being able to click your fingers and demand to fly or demand to go somewhere or have something fixed. That doesn't, isn't going to work with the ADSB out. If, if you don't have it, you cannot fly into the US controlled airspace. And if you do fly in and you don't have the system in place, you will have to get a flying permit to fly to the nearest centre that can install the equipment for you. Now, you imagine that there's hundreds of aircraft doing that in the first few weeks of January. You possibly have to sit waiting on a slot for a couple of months. That's your aircraft downed for two months. You know, any wow. smart operator can't afford that time and cost. Yeah, it's interesting there. I get the sense from a, a number of uh, general aviation pilots, private pilots, that uh, there is some pushback. Uh, a number of them, like you say, Jane, are, are used to uh, being able to fly in a certain kind of environment, certain uh, ability to take off and go. Uh, others are concerned that it's a privacy issue where you know now their end number is going to be logged and, and tracked and, and all of that. So there's some pushback. So it'll be interesting to see how the general aviation sector sort of affects this, well, everyone else as we get closer and closer to, to 2020. Internally, we're saying hope is not a strategy. <laughs> you yeah. have to go. <laughs> All right. Well, next, as a trusted aircraft modifications house in Canada, Flying Colors is regularly in the news. The company transforms business aircraft interiors for various aircraft types. Jane, what trends are you seeing in business aircraft interiors and what kinds of requests does Flying Colors field from clients these days? Well, we've seen quite a growth in requests for refurbishment recently. As, as we're all aware, the, uh, the value of the pre-owned business jet inventory is on the up. Um, it's harder to get hold of brand new aircraft or there's long wait times. And savvy owners are looking at the option of buying an older aircraft having it modified and being presented effectively at the end of the process with an as-new aircraft designed completely for your own personal use, with your own personal styling. Um, and people are really beginning to understand the value, the saving in time, 
um, and the benefits that this brings. So, so our, our main work at the moment is coming from the refurbishment sector. Um, owners and operators, you know, have a number of options now in each of kind of the aircraft range and weight categories. And really what makes the difference in purchasing, I think, these days is often about what the interior can offer and how you can create your own space in the air, whether that's recreating what you have in the interior of your yacht or in your apartment, your house, your mansion. Um, so that's the kind of sort of trend that we're seeing at the moment. Very personal. It's moved a little bit away from the, the traditional beige. Um, people are wanting to add in splashes of colour. Um, new materials are making design much more interesting as well. Uh, we've seen a lot of requests for carbon fibre. So Flying Colours was one of the first companies to put out a predominantly um, modified interior that used carbon fibre. It was uh, about three years ago and went to an Asian client. And in-house, we referred to the interior as if it, if it had been a computer, it would have been an Apple Mac. It was very kind of white and crisp, black, clean lines with a splash of red divan. But the carbon fibre replaced all the traditional wood monuments in the aircraft. And we're seeing that trend more and more now. And, and we've seen it from other completion houses as well. So you'll have the colours of maybe maybe the neutral greys, but with flashes of bright colour. One of the things we've been investigating recently is dyeing carbon fibre to get the exact colour that the client wants as well. You'll be amazed at how specific they can be. Jane, when an operator comes to Flying Colours, uh, can they sit down and literally start designing with Flying Colours an interior almost from scratch then? I had the pleasure of traveling uh, and visiting Flying Colours years ago and was impressed to see that they make a lot of their own furniture, for example. Um, it, how much uh, choice is the, uh, is the operator given to really personalize it? Can they kind of start from scratch and, and go from there? Yeah, absolutely, Mary. We have our own design room, which is full of, of um, interesting materials, um, swatches of carpet, lights, carbon fibre. We've even got the collection of stone flooring that's um, become quite popular recently. So oh, yeah. you'll see that, that, yeah, which is it's an interesting concept. You know, we had one customer who really wanted a particular colour of blue in his helicopter, actually. It was an S92. And we had to literally go to a quarry in Italy to get the exact blue veneer for his aircraft so it matched the exact colour that he wanted. We can do all of that in-house. So you can literally come in with a concept or come in with a photo of your favourite car. We're seeing a lot of crossover between the styles of really luxurious cars and how then that gets replicated on the interior of aircraft. Um, so absolutely, you can come to us and say, I'd like my aircraft in pink and purple spots. And we can put a design for you, should you like that. Um, but we're also seeing, I think, with the with the recognition of the value of a refurbishment, um, that smart owners are looking at the pre-engineered components that are beginning to come to market. So we, um, in fact, there was something on Runway Girl Network this week about the innovation project that we undertook, which was the first jet to ever have the pre-engineered components put in. Now, this is important because if you have these pre-engineered elements available, you can have the same look and feel, but you can also get hold of equipment that previously was only available via an OEM brand new purchase. So in this case, this was the Lufthansa Technique NICE cabin management system. Until then, you could have only got that new off the line. But with the new Lufthansa pre-engineered components, that can go into a refurbishment. So those are bringing new elements into the design as well. We're not restricted by just only what's available 
as a refurbishment. You can actually buy um, top-of-the-range state-of-the-art equipment now as well. So the airframers are making it a little easier then for these retrofittable solutions then. They're, uh, not the airframers, but rather the, the OEMs that are delivering this um, uh, line fit, they're starting to look at here's what we can do then post-delivery for those so, who want to retrofit. So, you know, you have various different components. So Lufthansa produced this cabin management system. It's normally only available in a brand new aircraft as a line fit. Now with the pre-engineered, you can put it into your own aircraft cabin as a, even as a uh, pre-owned. So we put it into a 2003 Global Express. Gotcha. Jane, does a client ever come in to Flying Colors with an idea and uh, have to be advised that that's really not a very good idea or a feasible idea? Yeah, we had a client recently who wanted us to create a completely smooth cabin. So didn't want any switches, no visible lighting components, um, didn't want to see anywhere where you would plug in your personal devices. He just literally wanted smooth walls, a, a kind of clear white tube. It was like something out of Space Odyssey. Um, we haven't said no to him. We're sitting down and seeing what we can actually feasibly do with that. And that's exactly what Flying Colors is really specialised at. You know, we we pretty much do all our own design, our design engineering, the installation and testing. So everything is done in-house. So we're kind of experts in many fields. And this really helps in terms of a client that comes in with such a specific request. We can really figure out how it may or may not work. Where do the in-house designers come from? What kinds of backgrounds or skills? Who are those people? Uh, well, the VP of design is Kate RN. She's actually part of the Gillespie family that own Flying Colors and has lived and breathed aviation ever since she was you know, old enough to walk. So she's grown up in that area, but she looks to a varying different external influences. So the fashion industry, for example, she gets inspiration there, the luxury car sector. I mean, as you said about the, uh, the Concorde at the, in the introduction, you know, that's, that's a big influence for the interiors of jets. You know, it's, it's fast machines and people like them to be sleek and lean. So we often get requests to have similar styles internally in the cabin. Um, the difference, of course, is you have to start working with weight, flammability, restricted space, and it makes it more of a challenge. Jane, we're always trying to keep an eye out for any innovations in the business aviation space that might make the leap to the commercial sector. Uh, do you think maybe like the stone flooring that you mentioned or some of these uh, yeah, composites and veneers, do you think that uh, you know, kind of some of your top tier higher end carriers pay attention to that to, to consider perhaps what they can introduce perhaps in their first class or business class uh, cabins? I would imagine they would do. I mean, we, we tend not to work with the commercial sector, but we've re-delivered recently an aircraft to um, a Malaysian company. And they are a leisure company with a hotel chain across Malaysia with golf courses and casinos. And they asked us to convert a CRJ into an executive um, aircraft cabin, but it's going to be used in a not dissimilar way to a first class cabin might be on a commercial jet. So they needed to have the durability that you need for a commercial aircraft. They needed to have the space to store the amount of luggage that's being carried around. So those are some of the factors that could be transferred over to commercial. So that actually had a slate floor in the kitchen area. Um, it had what we are seeing lots of call for these days is the Nespresso machines. And I can see those kind of um, pieces of equipment going on to commercial aircraft for sure. Hmm. Well, last but not least, 
Jane recently hosted a Women in Aviation in Africa panel in Lagos, which proved extremely interesting. Jane, what did you learn from this event in Africa? Is the notion of women in aviation different from the Western world? Well, I find it very interesting. Whenever I'm in Africa with women in aviation Africa, I, I see them supported a lot more, I would say, by their male counterparts. Um, the conference that I was at was at the Africa Regional Symposium, and I hosted the Women in Aviation panel. And I was really humbled by the kind of the women that I was on the panel with. There was a doctor who'd created her own flying medivac um, network. There was a lawyer who'd become the MD of a fractional ownership company. You know, they were the very high, highly trained, highly educated and very approachable women. Um, they all confirmed that perhaps you have to work a little bit harder as a woman in aviation uh, to be taken seriously, but found that the, their skills that women bring to the table are truly valued in Africa. So the ability to perhaps think emotionally intelligently about a situation the ability to apply a logic, to see something from a different point of view. Um, very welcomed in Africa. I've been to one event in the UK where at the end of the event, I spoke to one of the older gentlemen at the, uh, the meeting who said, I said, asked him, what did you think? He said, oh, would have been better if there'd be more pretty women in the room. Oh, and, Lord. You know, it was really just, I was astonished that he said that. And I just, it was very hard to respond. I would never dream of hearing a remark like that in Africa. I think they are much more accepting of women in the business. Um, you go somewhere like Ethiopian Airlines in their maintenance sector, about a third of their engineers are women at Ethiopian Airlines, which is just amazing. You know, it's incredible. Mm. It, it is amazing. In fact, uh, Ethiopia, they have this uh, aviation academy, uh, which graduates hundreds of aviation professionals on a regular basis. And the, their le their, a very recent class graduated 47 pilots, 92 aviation maintenance technicians, 50 cabin crew members. Um, but the, the stats that they provided said that a whopping 145 of the 184 aviation professionals who graduated at a ceremony, this was uh, recently in February, were women. They are going gangbusters. Amazing. <laughs> it's really quite impressive. Yeah, it's very true. And you really, you know, I, I still have a sense in Europe that women, you know, women do the soft area of business aviation, if you like. They're, they're in the FBOs and they're the flight attendants. Whereas in Africa, that is not the case at all. There's a company that I work with down there as part of AFA, and they have female pilots, female engineers, their sales and marketing director is female. Um, so, you know, that it's really forward thinking. And more so, I would say, in the sub-Saharan areas. So if you are a woman, you stand almost, I wouldn't say a better chance of success in Africa than in Europe. But it, to some extent, it seems that way. Um, and I'm not sure if that's because the societal divisions are different on the continent. Um, but women seem to have much more of an equal playing field in terms of development within aviation. Don't get me wrong. There's still very much the challenge of, you know, how do you attract women or girls, I should say, into the STEM areas of education? How, how do you make it attractive to go into aviation and not just want to be a flight attendant? You know, it's, there are still those issues, and at AFTA we're really trying to work on those issues as well. 
we think a lot about it on, on Runway Girl Network. And you know, I, I participated in a panel about a year ago uh, with uh, at Kappa. They actually took a look at why don't we have more women in aviation? And there were all sorts of ideas bandied about. And people were quite torn on, on how to address it. Um, and one is little girls, say, for example, here in the United States, aren't necessarily uh, introduced to aviation uh, at an early age. Uh, in a way that little boys are, you know, even from what they play with, the toys, the okay. the types, the games that they play. And could we start at the very beginning and start kind of rethinking it from the, from the, the time these children are quite young? Do, do you think that there is value in that, Jane? Absolutely. I think the, the sooner that, you know, the girls are getting a model aeroplane in their stocking at Christmas, um, that they're being encouraged to visit the air shows to get inspired uh, that they're shown that aviation provides you all sorts of opportunities. It's not just about being a pilot, you know, or a flight attendant, that there are many, many other aspects to the industry. Um, and if that can be introduced at an early stage in, in a girl's psyche, I think it would be very powerful. Yeah, I think so, especially. And I can give you an example. Last weekend was the annual Innovations in Flight event at the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum. And uh, several of us from uh, the Airplane Geeks podcast attended and did some recording while we were there. And one of the characteristics of this event is that parents, a lot of parents, bring their children with them. And I met a number of uh, young women and young girls who were just walking around that museum and amongst the airplanes outside with their eyes bulging. They were so enthusiastic about what they were seeing. And what a great way to plant that little seed or, or you know, create that little spark of interest in, in aviation that, you know, for some of them it may go nowhere. But I suspect for quite a few of them, it will go somewhere and they'll look to develop the interest and maybe even eventually develop a career in aviation. I think what I see in Africa is I think that, that education is so valued by everybody um, that the, the girls are as encouraged to take on maths and, and science as they are to take on English and cooking or whatever you might think is a girl's discipline. So I think that encouragement does come from an earlier age. And I think there is a genuinely more equal level playing field in gender in a lot of the countries as well. And I think that really is, is powerful. And I, I think that's why we see Africa with perhaps a bit more advanced theories on, on women in aviation. It's uh, it's almost kind of a sad commentary for the United States and certain other Western countries, really, you know? Yeah, maybe some lessons. Uh, <laughs> very yeah. sad commentary. So I wonder as well if there's something to do with the forces. I mean, I, I hate to say it, but I think, you know, there's still an element of, you know, we're the defenders of the realm, whether it's North America or Europe, and that's the boys' world. And, and Africa just doesn't have that approach, you know? It's about making society better, making the economy better, making life better for everyone, whatever that takes, you know. Yeah, yeah. There's a group called Women of Aviation that are trying to introduce young girls to flight, to get them into just a small plane. And they are really excited about the kind of uh, results that they're seeing. It looks like a model that, that is starting to be copied now, where, you know, we can talk a lot about aviation. We can introduce uh, children to games and toys and, 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 and other STEM-related activities, but getting them actually up into an aircraft 
for their very first flight uh, in a small plane can be thrilling and really leave a kind of a lasting impression. Uh, so we're kind of tracking what they're doing as well, the Women of Aviation Group, uh, which seems like a, a nice model at this point. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think one of the things that I came away from the Women um, in Aviation in Africa panel was that of the five women on the stage with me, only one had actively decided to go into aviation. The others had come to aviation via different routes. So one was a doctor that then became a pilot, then set up the Medivac company. Another one was a legal graduate who then come to run a company. So none of them had actively sought really to get into aviation. But when they were there, they were doing a great job and, you know, they love it and they're treated as equally as their fellow colleagues in the, from the male fraternity. And the male guys were saying they find that women are much more loyal than the men, which I also uh, think interesting. Yeah, you know, that they, is interesting. Yeah, particularly in, in terms of, you know, obviously the maternity issue came up at some point and each one of the, I mean, very senior um, Nigerian aviation guys, you know, the veterans and very well-respected people in Nigeria, which is obviously the biggest business aviation country in Africa, were saying they find that the women, yes, they do have their babies, but they come back and they stay. Whereas the guys seem to float about much more. They have, you know, they, they see an opportunity in North Africa. They see an opportunity in the Gulf. Then they come back, whereas the women tend to stay with the company and really grow with the company. Yeah, it's interesting. Indian carriers have expressed uh, the same. Uh, actually, one of our, our correspondents, uh, Neela Matthews, wrote a piece about that where these uh, Indian operators were saying that uh, that women have proven to be more loyal than the men and that that really obviously is fantastic for, for growing their business because they have that solidity and they can, they can count on uh, their staffers to stick around. So all sorts of benefits. Well, unfortunately, we're rapidly coming to a close. We want to thank our listeners. Remember, you can find us online at RunwayGirlNetwork.com and on iTunes. Be sure to follow all the Runway Girl Network activity on Twitter at at @RunwayGirl. And remember to use the PaxX hashtag when tweeting about the passenger experience. Join in the conversation. It is quite exciting. We've got people sharing from all over the world. I'd like to reiterate our thanks to our sponsor, the Jetliner Cabins eBook app. And I'd like to thank Jane for being our guest. Jane. Where can listeners find you at? Uh, well, they can always go to flyingcolorscorp.com and they can find all our latest information about ADSB out and design, anything else you might need in terms of maintenance at the website. Great. Jane, it's been a real pleasure. And we'll ask all of you listening to please join us again next time as we talk about the passenger experience on the PaxX Podcast. Take care, everyone. Take care, everyone.